what you're going through or what you're experiencing, but hopefully the core of this series, and we'll kind of drive it home today, will speak to whatever you're experiencing, whether it's good stuff on the, on the mountains or maybe you find yourself down in the valley, regardless. And so this series, Wide Right, we just really wanted to capitalize on this one moment in football history as we get ready for Super Bowl Sunday this day. It's all about the gospel. It's not about football. But this just gives us a metaphor to really kind of hang on to, this moment where Scott Norwood lost the Super Bowl and his kick went wide right. Really, the whole idea behind the series is we wanted to focus in on this idea that our few our views of success and failure, they need to be transformed. Who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, whether you feel like your life matters or whether you're moving down the right path, what kind of legacy are you leaving? How do you make your mark? Do you feel like you're here for the right purpose and the right reason that God is using you in your spot, in your circumstances to do the things that he wants to do? Do you feel like it's been worth it? Do you feel like you need to make a mid-course correction? All of these questions are really founded on this understanding. What does success mean to you? What do you think failure looks like? And what do you think your response should be to either of those things? How do you find your way and navigate to understanding the truth and the reality that you are not here by accident, that God is with you, that he is using you to do certain things in certain circumstances with the right people, and that he has a purpose for your life? What does it mean for you? Today, we'll watch the Super Bowl. How many of you will watch the, the game? Let me see your hands. Okay. How many of you will watch for the commercials? Right. Very good. How many of you are rooting for a specific team? Does it even matter to you? 49ers? Anybody want? Okay, yeah, yeah. Anybody but the Chiefs? Anybody? Okay. It's hard not to root against a conference rival a little bit, isn't it? But then they're like one of us, so you know, you don't know. It's like watching your brother win something. You're like, I don't know how to feel about that. And so these are the feelings we have. It will be a master class in an understanding of our culture and success and failure. You will see all kinds of messages about success and failure that if you're paying attention would confuse even the most astute and thoughtful student. What does it mean, success? What does failure mean? And so there will be, after the end of the game, an MVP that will be crowned. The most valuable player. And then some announcer some along, somewhere along the way will say, and remind us all that there's no I in team, but there will be standouts, and they'll name them and celebrate them. And it will be very obvious when contracts are renegotiated who is the most valuable. Somebody will remind you, probably one of the announcers, one of the commentators will remind you that it is defense that wins championships. Every year it's mentioned. Yet after the win, the first person that will be interviewed on the field will probably be the quarterback or an offensive star. There will be coaches involved. There will be players involved. There's owners up in the box and $1,000 suits eating the finest foods. And for each of these groups, success and failure is very specifically defined in very different ways. How is it defined for you? How do you decide? whether or not you are making your mark. And how easily are the values that will be represented by today's big game, 
How easily do they seep into your own thinking, your value system, your understanding of life? And how you take those into your family or your workplace or your own heart? Do you set your priorities by them? Does your life matter? And by what standard and what scale? Well, to help us sort of wrap everything up and grab a little inspiration for where we're headed over the next several weeks, not just in your life and my life, us together as the body of Christ, we'll go to Hebrews chapter 12 to give us a glimpse of of really what it's all about and what values matter the most. And when we look to this place, very first verse of Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, the author of Hebrews begins with this word, what's the first word? Now, whenever you see this word, you go, ah, there's some context. There's something that's, that's there that came before this therefore, and I need to understand what it's there for. So if I'm going to grasp it, I need to understand not what's in Hebrews chapter 12. That's important, and we'll get there to a few verses. But what's in Hebrews chapter 11? It's the great chapter in our New Testament that describes this hall of faith this hall of fame that is centered around faith. The author of Hebrews describes our faith heroes chronicled in the Old Testament and what faith has done to their existence about what they believed even in spite of opposition, even in spite of all the circumstances around them. And so there are some names listed that you might remember from Sunday school days or even your own Bible reading or stories that you're familiar with about Noah Abraham, and Jacob, and Joseph, and David, and what it was like as they lived out their lives of faith. So the author of Hebrews extols what they lived like and the things that they accomplished. What's beautiful about this picture, if you know the biblical stories at all, is that every one of these people, every individual mention, has these moments of of shining incredible success where they believed against all odds and then found themselves in complete abject failure, giving in to some of the most egregious sins listed in Scripture. That they're just like me. They're just like you. This mix, complex of success and failure. And so he lists some of these incredible men of faith and some of these stories from the Old Testament. And then the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 then says this, and and what more shall I say? I I do not even have time to talk about Gideon or Barak or Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and all the prophets. And then he has this great phrase that follows this. It says, the world was not worthy of them. Ah, it's a great picture. And then he says this. These were all commended for their faith, which is believing when you cannot see. It's understanding and putting your weight down on something that you're not completely sure of just yet. It's faith. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something, what? What's better? What's he talking about? What's better? You know a little something about God's presence from the beginning of time. That when God established the temple, his presence was located 
physically located in a very specific room in the temple. You remember what it was called? The what? Holy of Holies. That's right. And it was set apart. Nobody could even go in there and experience the fullness of God's presence. It was behind a curtain. One person could go one time a year, this high priest. And in fact, it was so exclusive and so unusual that he would even go in that room that when he went in, they tied a rope around his foot in case he died while he was in there. Nobody could go in to even get a dead body. This is God's presence. This is who he is. Distant, holy, separate, other. Moses has to go to Mount Sinai to meet with them. He can't come and be among the people. And so when Moses goes to Mount Sinai, even he just sees just a, a mere representation of God, doesn't experience the fullness of God's presence. When Elijah experiences God, is it comes in the form of silence. Nobody could even stand to be in the fullness of God's presence. What is the better that the author of Hebrews is describing that had been planned? What is the better? When the New Testament begins, the promise of God's Son that came through the prophets, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means what? God distant from us? God far away? God behind a curtain? No, no. What is it? God with us. This is the promise of Jesus. This is the better. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will walk with you. This is who Jesus is. And, and this is the reality, followers of Jesus living in the context of the gospel. That's what it means that you have available to you the presence of Jesus wherever you go. Now, some of you, maybe you're unaware of it. Maybe some of you want to keep him here for a bit. You feel like your prayers aren't going past the ceiling. Maybe you are just taking a break from God and I don't know, whatever it is. But Jesus' promise is that he is with us always that he will never leave us. And there's nothing like it. But when I was getting ready for surgery, you know, I'm in this pre-op area and there's a flurry of activity. It's like they don't even know I'm anxious, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm waiting for this thing to occur. And some friends come in to, to pray with me and, and then this gives me calm. And, and then all of a sudden a nurse comes through and says, it's time. It's time. I've been waiting for this for, you know, two months now. And now it's time? I'm not ready for this. And so they begin to wheel me away, and Donna grabs my hand and, and kisses me, and, and then it hits me. This is, this is not good. This is actually going to happen. So they wheel me into this room, and they're busy, and, I, and I'm realizing that, that Jesus is with me. Not, come on. Not metaphorically, that he is with me. I mean, to lay there on that gurney while they're about to do what they're going to do makes no sense at all. What makes sense is for me to get up off that gurney and say, nah, this ain't going to happen. This is, this is stupid. But for God, who is with us, 
I know what some of you have faced in your life and that it is impossible to imagine even getting out of bed, let alone facing it with courage. But for God, he is with you. It's his promise. That didn't mean they weren't going to cut on me. They sure did. I've got five little scars to show for it. But it does mean that God was with me. And now Jesus and I have a little something in common, right? We both have some scars. But God, that is what is better. That is what matters. This is why we talk about union with God. Now, before we get to that, Let's just review just a tiny bit. We said at the beginning of the series that this idea of missing the mark or going wide right, in Scripture it's called hamartia. This is sin. And the word literally means to miss the mark. Now, what does that mean? And what does that even mean for me? Or what does it mean for you? What does a, an old ancient Roman archery term have to do with my life today and walking with God, what does missing the mark mean? Now, for you to understand this and grasp it is really paramount because the implications are massive. And maybe you don't understand it now, or maybe you're just beginning to put the pieces together, but your perception about what it means to miss the mark has everything to do with how you perceive God's love for you. It has everything to do with how you perceive God's love for the people around you who disappoint you and who fail. It has everything to do with what you think about relationships are and how they should work and what it means to have peace, not just with God, but with each other. Your esteem of others and the respect that you have for the people around you, understanding what miss the mark means, what's foundational to all of it. And scholars and theologians, they all agree that hamartia, this Greek word that you see, that is used in the New Testament to describe all manner of sin, they all agree it means to miss the mark. But the question that is more profound and really more telling, and in fact, absolutely more foundational to the whole deal, is this question, what is the mark? This is the defining question. If you understand this, then you can build from there. What is the mark? The Pharisees, maybe some of us grew up in churches, we believe the same thing, that the mark was moral perfection. And this idea that we could move toward moral perfection is in fact the illusion that keeps most of us stuck in our spiritual lives. Moral perfection, that there is a standard of behavior and that when it's not met, that's the center of the bullseye. It is missed. And so the truth should be told. When the truth isn't told, when there is a lie that is perpetuated, it is missing the mark, regardless of what it is, right? There are no Jews in our house. You look good in those jeans. I didn't take the money. We have missed the mark. This, of course, is the most common understanding among people of faith all throughout history. It was the understanding of the Old Testament, Jews, that 
looked at the law and believed this surely must be the heart of God, moral perfection. It was easily transplanted into the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes, and you see it played out on every page of the New Testament, that this is the conflict that Jesus experienced, that the mark surely must be moral perfection. And of course, it's carried on in church after church after church. And when this becomes the case for most churches, then, well, the understanding, the perception is that the church becomes the morality police and each of us are God's little special agents that get to root out sin in other people while we ignore the log in our own eye. And when you have this perception, then you walk every day with the feeling and the belief that you will never be enough and that the people around you will always fall short as well. But what if? What if the mark isn't moral perfection? What if the mark is union with God? What if the mark is not oriented around specific behavior? What if it's not moral perfection? What if it is my connection, my relationship, my reconciliation with God? What if that is the mark? And that's what we've used as our understanding throughout this series and built it one way or another. And so Will French helps us understand what it means to live in the mundane and how we get distracted by the monotony of life. Deb helped us understand what it means to, under, to, to be going the wrong way and how we turn and shift really the classic definition of repentance and what that looks like, not just in David's life in the Old Testament, but in our life. The mark is union with God. When this is our understanding, shame gets moved to the side. Sin is no longer the focus. Pride becomes a bit player in our life. And when we read Scripture with this understanding, pieces that never seem to fit all of a sudden fall into place. You remember the story of the rich young ruler, right? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says back to him, why do you call me good? No one's good but the Father. And all of a sudden now we've got some good banter. This is going to be a good discussion, right? And so then he says, but to answer your question, you know the law, you obey the law. How do you read it? And so the rich young ruler lists off a few commandments that he's obeyed, surely not all of them, probably not even the ones he listed if we're being honest. But he said, I've kept these since I was a boy. Jesus said, well, then you've, led, you've read the law correctly. Keep those and you shall live. But there is, then he says, one thing you lack. Now, if you believe for a second that the middle of the target, the middle of the bullseye is moral perfection, then it feels like Jesus is just playing games with him, doesn't it? Like he's just pulling things out of a hat. I don't know. Let's think of something that would really irritate him and make that a requirement. But that's not what he's doing. Jesus is finding and identifying and calling out the one thing in this man's life that disrupts or gets in the way of his union with God. What is it for him? Well, his security is in his wealth. His identity is in his status. And Jesus asks him to lay it down. For punishment? No. It's in the way. In the way of what? In the way of him connecting to God. How so? 
He doesn't have to depend on anyone. So Jesus says, sell what you have and then you will find life. This is why the center of the bullseye is union with God. This is what is meant by better. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, God had planned for us something that was, what? Better. That's it. God is with you. He's called you his friends. He said he would never leave you. And this is why the writer of Hebrews then begins the beginning of chapter 12 with this phrase. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of what? Who is it? Who are the witnesses? We've mentioned a few of them, haven't we, right? Have you read Hebrews chapter 11? It's people like Noah, people like Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. These are the ones that in this picture, this incredibly poignant, powerful, emotional picture, they are the ones who have bought the scalp tickets to get into the Super Bowl, right? They are the ones who are in the seats that are right near the field. They are the ones that are ready to catch us after we run through the end zone and we leap into their arms. They are the ones who are watching me and watching you live out the dailiness of your life in faith, trying to sort out, what do I believe? Can it be sturdy enough to hold me? Can I trust God as they're wheeling me down the hallway? Can God help me in the middle of this mess that I'm in? They are the ones that are cheering us on while you're trying to sort out your faith. How hard has it been for you to sort out your faith? For you to deal with your disappointment with God? For you to struggle with the things that He's allowed you to go through? How hard is it for you to know as you put the pieces together that God is still with you? How many times have you doubted that very truth? How many times have you wondered if your prayers are even getting past the ceiling? How many times have you thought about just bagging it and giving up? As you are sorting out your faith, they are the witnesses that are cheering you on. How hard was it for Noah to keep building a boat when nobody had ever even seen rain before? How hard was it for Abraham to believe that God was going to take this old bag of bones of his and and this old marriage of his, and through that provide an heir? How hard was it for Joseph to find himself forsaken and left for dead and then being living and raising his own family in the midst of this incredible, different place, foreign country? How hard was it? They are the ones who are cheering you on. They are the ones who are standing on the sidelines saying to you, I know you can do it. Come on, just a little harder, just a little further. Don't give up. Believe. God is with you, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Then he goes on to say this, let us throw off everything that, what? Whatever that is, you name it, you describe it. It's a different list. It's not sin. He's going to talk about sin in a minute. It's things that get in the way that keep us going slower than we should that get in the way of our walk with God. What is it that's hindering you in your pursuit of Jesus? And then, not only that, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily, what? Entangles. 
One of the great translations I love of this is the sin that so easily ensnares us. The Greek word means literally surrounds us in a skillful way. What is it that is likely to get in the way of your union with God? Now, for some of us, it's as innocuous as busyness or, or things that just distract us. For some of us, it's our ego that keeps us from surrendering. Other, others, we find our security and, and our money or our career or our status or any of these things that just divert our attention away from Jesus. What is it that prevents you from hitting the mark, the bullseye, your union with God? Discouraged? Believing that God is with you and for you and in the middle of it with you. Then he goes on to say this. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on what? Every track coach worth their salt knows this. That every time you look for those that are on your heels, every time you take a moment and just stare at your feet, any time you take your eyes off the finish line, you literally lose time. There is one that is worthy of your attention. There is one that is worthy of your focus. It's not the opinions of others. It's not the size of your retirement account. It's not even the hope of something else that would be significant in your life or something that is to come. It is only Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look, if you're going to run this race, come on, you got Noah cheering you. You got David pulling for you. Keep your eyes on Jesus and him alone because he is the pioneer, the originator, the beginner of your faith. And he is the perfecter of your faith. And then he says this powerful verse, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How could he go through such pain? What was the joy set before him? What is the better? What did Jesus know? That the cross would be temporary pain, that it would bring about eternal reconciliation. That what he would have to endure for a moment would bring about a restored relationship between you and God the Father and Jesus, and that that would last forever. So because of that, he could scorn its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so in a final push of hope and inspiration, the author says this. So, when you find yourself weary and ready to give up, so when you're wondering if it's worth it, when you have had your attention distracted and you have allowed your priorities and your values to be influenced by the world around us, just take a minute, step back, and consider Him who endures such opposition from sinners. Consider Him. Consider those listed in Hebrews 11 who are cheering you on who are just waiting with bated breath to watch your victory in faith. They know that you can do it so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we're just going to pray just a minute. Let me take you through a couple questions. We're getting ready to kind of seal this up with a few lyrics and a pretty, uh, pretty powerful song. Could you just bow your heads?
So right now, with your heads bowed, just ask this question of God. Lord, what is it that tempts me to be distracted from my union with you? And just give the Holy Spirit a moment just to call that to your attention. Lord, what is it that tempts me to place my attention, my values, my effort, my heart, and my mind away from my union with you? What is it for you? Just name it before the Lord. Anxiety, fear. For some of you, it's self-sufficiency. Some of us are just like the rich young ruler. We are doing just fine, it seems, at least for the moment, without God. Lord, as we try to surrender our views of success and failure, what matters and what doesn't matter, what's important and what we're ready to set aside, we ask that you would transform them in our lives and in our hearts. Or we believe that sin is any time we're distracted from our union with you. Lord, honestly, we can't believe that we would allow something as trivial as just having a busy schedule from interrupting our union with you. But it seems that there are so many culprits that can draw us away and interrupt it. Lord, we believe that Jesus came for something better. And yet so often we find ourselves settling for something less. So Lord, as we listen to and sing these lyrics, may the truth of your word hit its mark in us.